This is KTSW 89.9, and welcome to Philosophy Mixed, the Texas State Philosophy Department and KTSW's podcast series on philosophy and the nature of things. My name is Rebecca Farinas. I'm in the Texas State Philosophy Department, and I'm happy to welcome you to our program that highlights the ongoing philosophy dialogue series. And we're happy to be able to collaborate with Dr. Craig Hanks, the head of the philosophy department, and Kimberly Clay, executive producer here at KTSW, as well as Joanne Carson, who, along with Vince Luizzi, developed the dialogue series over 22 years ago. Luckily, Professor Luizzi is with us today, so we hope to, um, we're here to discuss his new book, Appeal to People's Court, Rethinking Laws, Judging, and Punishment, soon to be released by Brill. And before I introduce the rest of our guests today, I would like to set the stage for this discussion. This is our second session of Philosophy Mix this semester, spring 2018, our first being Women in Prison. And I think that session was enlightening and engaging. One of our goals with this series is to present many sides of the nature of things, so our interdisciplinary approach will help us to continue our exploration of the university's common experience topic this year, which is justice, with a special focus on incarceration and court systems. Today we look at people's courts as we rethink the practical ends and means of justice, and we ask the question, what is a people's court and what is there about it that allows us to rethink law, judging, and punishment? In this respect, um, I'd like to quote John Dewey, who wrote in 1929 his essay, Logical Method and Law, quote, in terms of rethinking laws and courts, there are means of intellectual survey, analysis, and insight into the factors of the situation which to be dealt with. Like other tools, they must be modified when they are applied to new conditions and new results have to be achieved. Here is where the great practical evil of the doctrine of immutable and necessary antecedent rules come in. It sanctifies the old. Adherence to it in practice constantly widens the gap between current social conditions and the principles used by the laws. The effect is to breed irritation, disrespect for law, together with vital alliance between the judiciary and entrenched interests that correspond most nearly to the conditions under which the rules of law were previously laid down. So that brings us to our discussion at hand. And I would like to introduce our guest, Dr. Vince Luizzi, from Texas State Philosophy Department. Hello, happy to be here. Thank you for coming. Dr. Audwin Anderson from Texas State Sociology Department and Director for the Center for Diversity and Gender Studies. Thank you, pleased to be here also. Thank you for being here. And Dr. Vaughn Baltzley from Texas State Philosophy. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Dr. Valsley has been so kind as to offer to help facilitate the discussion, so I will turn it over to him. Well, thank you very much. As I said, it's an honor to be here with everyone. Um, the 
uh, in many ways, uh, the, we're here uh, in honor of Professor Luizzi's forthcoming book, and it's about people's courts. Uh, but before we get into the book, Professor Luizzi, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about people's courts in general and about your personal involvement with them. Be happy to, Vaughn. Uh, I think the first thing to uh, take into account when we're talking about people's courts is that they are courts like other courts in our judicial system. Uh, the sorts of things that many of you are familiar with as uh, examples of people's courts would be municipal courts, sometimes we talk about traffic courts, uh, justice of the peace courts. Uh, what's distinctive about people's courts is that uh, although they're operating uh, with the same rules of procedure, the same rules of evidence, the same substantive laws uh, that other courts are working with, they have to function in such a way that citizens are allowed to represent themselves because quite absent in people's courts, usually, are such players as prosecutors and defense attorneys. Uh, people, the people, members of the citizenry, uh, take on the role of representing themselves, and as such, they're going to need some guidance in doing that. So it's up to the judge to introduce enough informality into what otherwise might be some formal proceedings so that people can represent themselves and do so in a good faith and effective fashion. Uh, so uh, looking at that, uh, you see the way in which the citizen uh, plays an essential role in our conception of the people's court. And what I try to do in the work is suggest that uh, these courts at the very lowest level of adjudication, many times uh, uh, commonly referred to as inferior courts uh, because of the simplicity of what they handle and the informal ways in which they function, uh, uh, we think of them as being venues where very little of importance goes on. But what I try to bring out in the work is that we get some valuable insights uh, from watching the workings of people's courts, valuable insights for rethinking such major categories of the legal system and of legal theory as law itself, judging, and punishment. So uh, as far as my own involvement goes, I, I think I can uh, very quickly say that for uh, about 36 years, I've been a municipal judge for the city of San Marcos, serving in an associate or alternate capacity, and have had ample opportunities to uh, adjudicate in a people's court, interact with the citizenry, and visit people's courts around our country and the world. I see. So you're writing this book very much as a scholar and a practitioner exactly. of people's courts. Very good. Yes. Now, Dr. Anderson, if I can turn to you for a moment, I understand mm -hmm. your research as a sociologist also bears on this. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your perspective on this and the research you've done? Yeah, so um, I come at this as a sociologist, kind of looking at the kind of precursors to uh, philosophical legal realism that Vince uh, highlights in his, in his work, the kind of social, social legal movement that starts in the late 1800s, people like Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, Roscoe Pound, and kind of a sociological jurisprudence coming out of a, a, a kind of a legal formalism which argued that 
uh, the law is about applying kind of abstract legal principles to cases, to facts and evidence, and that gives the law then a kind of a, um, a scientific right, uh, point of view and makes the law uh, predictable and gives some certainty to the law. But the social legal movement and sociological jurisprudence and then, legal, and then later legal realism kind of critiques that. And the law really, the function of the law is really about meeting human and social needs, right? Um, and so as societies evolve, the law must evolve also, right? Uh, to continue to meet those needs as those needs and desires change, uh, the law must change, right? So the law then in the hands of judges, right? The law becomes in those movements kind of the behavior of judges, right? You know, to cut to the chase, the law is what judges say the law is, right? As opposed to this group of legal principles, this abstract legal principles that we apply, right, to give certainty, right? Uh, so that's kind of my kind of entry into this and approach towards looking at these things. Very good, thank you. Turning to the book now, Professor Luizzi, I understand mm -hmm. there's uh, three, well, one might characterize the book as, as drawing three main lessons or themes from your experience in people's courts, themes mm -hmm. with respect to, to how we might rethink uh, law and the activity of judges and punishment. Can you, can you mm -hmm. expand on that just a little bit on, on the book's overall themes? Sure. And uh, in some ways, my uh, uh, explanation about how we're rethinking law uh, uh, emanates from that interest in carrying over from our look at what people's courts are, carrying over uh, the importance uh, of understanding the citizen's role uh, in the conception, whether it's people's courts or uh, law itself. When you look at traditional views, and there are many theories about what law is, but in general, uh, what you find common among them is that we're talking about law as a rule or a norm. And as such, it's a type of a fixed entity. If you look at one common definition, and this probably fits with most people's understanding of what a law is, it's an order backed by a threat. Don't steal or you go to jail. An order backed by a threat. The order is the rule. It's something that's fixed and given. Where's the citizen in that definition of law? There is no citizen in that definition of law. And I could go through any one of a dozen different candidates for uh, legal, theory, legal theories offering what a law is. And they all seem to be playing with that notion of it's, it's a norm. Uh, and you find the absence of the citizen in the definition. So what I was trying to do was look at a way of looking at law, not the only way, but a way that at least captures something about the citizen's experience with law. Thus, I consider seriously uh, rethinking law to capture the citizen's activity and define law itself as an act of a citizen guided by a legal norm. A simple example would be a citizen who's out uh, at a party uh, alcohol is being served, 
The citizen refrains from having more than two drinks. The citizen is thinking about the uh, law against drunk driving. Uh, the citizen conforms to that law because the citizen uh, knows that he or she is going, going out to his or her car after the party and driving home. So there's activity guided by the legal norm. And that activity itself, the rule-guided activity, is what I'm defining as an essence of law. Uh, a simple way of conceiving it, uh, maybe visualizing it, might be if we had a, a grid that represented uh, the country. And whenever a citizen is being guided by, in his or her activity, a law or the legal norm, uh, uh, the grid shows up uh, with a green light. And as the citizen understands the norm, let's say, against drunk driving more clearly, the light uh, uh, beams more brightly. Uh, so that there are varying levels by which citizens are guided by the same legal norm. And that's reflected in this phenomenon that I'm talking about, the rule-guided conduct of the citizen. And just to tie it in uh, with uh, uh, Professor Anderson's interest in sociological jurisprudence, there we saw a fundamental shift in our understanding of law where it was defined as the activity of judges. And now, following that tradition, we're extending the idea of how important activity is in understanding law, and we're including the entire citizenry now with this understanding of law. I'm curious, is there a historical relationship either between the, the development in the later 19th century in sociological jurisprudence and, and later movements into legal realism and the phenomenon of people's courts? Did, did one develop sort of in an academic context and influence the other or vice versa or these two separate phenomena? Well, we usually think in terms of the Anglo-American system of jurisprudence. Because uh, I know in uh, Professor Luizzi's book, you do go through uh, a history of um, people's courts in other countries. Right, and actually it's an anecdotal history where I was collecting uh, ideas from other judges of people's courts. I, I visited them in uh, England, Ireland, uh, spoke with their judges, observed, corresponded with them, and uh, uh, when I say it was an anecdotal history, some judges would weigh in about the origin of people's courts or justice courts, and they would say they come from uh, the ways of trying cases from old England. And you don't mm. exactly get a date there, but you get a sense that uh, they certainly reach uh, much further back from, than from the 1800s when mm. we saw the beginning of sociological jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some people tie an adversary approach to justice to uh, the time uh, in very early days uh, of England where people would uh, duel it out. And the person who had not, uh, we're talking about with uh, fighting with swords, and the idea was that the person with right on his side would prevail in the confrontation, the clash of adversaries, just as we think that uh, we get at the truth best by having two rational sides being presented 
uh, at a trial of the prosecution and defense or the plaintiff and defendant in a civil trial, uh, uh, the clash of adversaries uh, we can justify because it helps us arrive at the truth. I see. So you've spoken about the, uh, how people's courts might prompt us to rethink law and the role of citizens. Can you talk now a little bit about judges? How might uh, judges of superior courts in particular learn something from judges of people's courts? And how can citizens help with shaping the role of the judge? Okay. Uh, I think uh, Professor Anderson did a, a really good job talking about the way in which uh, uh, American legal realists, sociological jurisprudence, uh, helped us break from some traditional uh, uh, fixed conceptions of what judges do. Uh, uh, I like the imagery we get in one labeling of uh, that uh, rigid conception. Uh, it's called slot machine jurisprudence. And the idea is that just like you put your money in a slot machine and pull the lever, it's all mechanical what happens. That's the way the judge was thought about in the traditional model. Uh, you take the law, you apply it logically to the facts, and you're bound by the workings of your logical syllogism to getting your conclusion. And the whole impetus of the uh, movement of American legal realism uh, was to get us to recognize that there are other factors and should be other factors that we should be aware of that bear on a judge's decision. Uh, logic is very important. And uh, virtually all of the uh, members of American legal realism, uh, adherence to that view, uh, certainly we're not suggesting that we abandon logic, but we want to recognize that other important factors are relevant. Mm. Thus, we can, uh, we can recognize uh, with people who are outside of uh, sociological jurisprudence that they would bring out that uh, sometimes values, moral principles, uh, play a role and have a claim on a judge's activity. Sometimes policies, like a policy to reduce the number of deaths uh, by, caused by auto accidents per year, that can bear on a judge's judgment. Uh, so the, uh, the idea is that I'm, I'm going along with that, uh, but I'm connecting the uh, uh, motivation for doing it with what we see going on in a people's court. Uh, many judges will see their role as simply rigidly applying rule to fact. What we see in people's courts are judges who have to confront the idea of their own identity. They have to do two things that are contradictory. They have to run a formal proceeding, and they have to run an informal proceeding. And that requires some self-reflection about how I'm going to bring this off. And I think that that's a good model, a good paradigm for every judge at any point in the legal system thinking about himself or herself as someone who's got to develop a viable conception of oneself as a judge. And as they're required to do that, we as citizens can make claims on how they see themselves, whether they should be more willing to give credence to 
the morals of our society, or whether they should move a little back more closely to the rigid mechanical model. So that's the way in which it connects with advice from people's courts and it confers on citizens an opportunity to make a claim on how their judges conceive themselves. Um, please. Yeah, if I can follow up on what he just said. So the whole sociological jurisprudence movement, part of the critique of um, kind of legal formalism that precedes that movement was that even, you know, as Vince talked about this kind of slot machine this movement, or, you know, kind of the, to use a, a sports metaphor, judges says call balls and strikes. Right there. Uh, the critique of that was that even, even in the time when we thought that to be the judge's role, judges were really um, making decisions based upon their interest, right? Whether that be a, you know, judges come from, I mean, sociologically speaking, judges come from a certain place in a social class hierarchy for the most part, in an economic hierarchy, in a racial hierarchy. Uh, and the decisions that they make um, come down in favor of their positions in those hierarchies. In fact, Oliver Wendell Holmes thought that was all right. I mean, the law should be in the interest of the rich. Why, why not? Right? That that was the thing. And then to turn that into the uh, discussion about this application of this idea to citizens, right? Uh, the work I've done in the sociology of law deals with juries, right? Juries as a source of social power, right? And looking at the kind of historical exclusion of certain groups from that source of power and so forth. But there in a jury, I think we have the behavior of citizens shaping the law, right? Um, these, you know, 12 people in a room, nine people in a room, whatever it is, coming from different experiences, different backgrounds, sitting there engaged in this dialectic discourse, trying to forge out what the standard is going to be. If you have people from a cross-section of the community, what is the community standards? What do the citizens say, right? Well, the jury is a location where we get that behavior of citizens kind of applied to that, to, to that, to that notion. And that's where I um, uh, find Vince's work very, very interesting in that you can move that over to now citizens, if you look at the jury as a representation of the kind of moral conscience of a community, right? Now the whole community is involved in constructing and determining what the law is, right? And they can challenge judges on what the law is. They can challenge legislatures on what the law is and so forth and so on. So, I'm, yeah. I'm glad, Professor Anderson, that you mentioned juries. Um, just for our readers' background, can, can we talk about, uh, do people's courts have juries, or is it only a judge presiding over a people's court? I would say that uh, there are uh, variations of people's courts uh, that have juries, uh, or uh, a jury is elective on the part of the uh, defendant. For example, in uh, our municipal courts of uh, the state of Texas, uh, jury trials are an option for uh, the defendants that come through. I see. So there are um, plenty of lessons for superior judges to learn from, from judges 
yes. the, the, e even in jury trials, certainly. Yeah. That ties into a question that I have, and um, maybe uh, Professor Balsley, you might um, want to um, um, put some input uh, in respect to a sense of fellowship in judging rather than a dynamic of power. Um, and when um, Professor Anderson talks about the moral consciousness of the community to uh, gather a dynamic uh, in terms of fellowship where in a political situation like a Supreme Court, um, it seems more of a dynamic of power rather than fellowship. Uh, one, one way to put this maybe too is, is to think what might be lost at, at the level of highest formality, say the Supreme Court, uh, from that formality that, uh, that, that is, is present in a people's court, right? The, the informality itself is a resource in a people's court that is necessarily absent perhaps in a high court like that. On the topic of the informality, I, I did want to ask a follow-up, Professor Luzi. You mentioned the mm -hmm. the interesting mm -hmm. role of a judge in people's court of having to balance the formality and informality. And here, I was wondering if if you might have personal anecdotes uh, that could illustrate a, a time when when you've felt like you've struck the right balance between formality and informality, and how striking that balance actually was mm -hmm. was helpful or fruitful mm -hmm. in in uh, achieving justice or uh, achieving a good outcome. I think I can. Uh, uh, tell you a story, one of my favorite ones, uh, that underscores the nature of the, uh, the dilemma, and it underscores also the way in which you have to make a judgment about how much informality needs to be uh, introduced. Uh, I went to a court uh, in Indonesia and had an opportunity to speak with the judge. The judge was very concerned about uh, language being a barrier between me and him. So what he, uh, what he did was he had uh, an interpreter, an interpreter present, and the ground rules were going to be that uh, he would uh, give the interpreter the answer to my question or a question that he had for me, the interpreter would uh, listen to what I had to say, and the interpreter would uh, relate to him what I had said. And it was uh, a way of ensuring, as we do in, uh, in politics when uh, international leaders get together, uh, they each have their own interpreters, but, uh, and they serve as checks on each other. But nonetheless, he, didn't want to, he wanted to make sure there was no confusion in uh, uh, our communication, our discourse, our conversation. All of the explanation of how we were going to be proceeding was in perfect English, and uh, uh, we had no use for this interpreter, but we had a set of rules set up just in case we needed to revert to something like that, just in case we needed some guidance where it seemed like we were, might have been up against a brick wall in uh, talking to each other. We had some formality to fall back on, that would allow us to move forward if we needed to introduce it. And I take that as the sort of thing that we're doing as uh, judges of people's courts. We have to get a sense of how savvy the uh, defendant might be uh, uh, from either watching TV or reading uh, courtroom novels. Uh, and uh, even though uh, they might not know the uh, 
technicalities of all the rules of evidence, uh, they seem to have certainly absorbed the spirit of what goes on in a courtroom, in an adversary courtroom, and how it unfolds. So you don't need to introduce much formality there and you can allow it to, uh, to unfold. Other times, people try to take over your courtroom, and that's uh, the very time you're going to haul out as much procedure and formality as you need to to contain that type of a personality. So uh, I use that as an interesting anecdote and uh, uh, gives you a sense of what you're up against. I see. Uh, formality mm -hmm. as fallback. In, a sense, <laughs> in this right? case, right. yes. yes I, uh -huh. I do shortly want to take this conversation uh, closer to our listeners and, and maybe uh, talk about what for the Texas State students who may be listening to this they might be able to gain from, from uh, knowledge of the People's Court. Uh, but before we do, I want to make sure the third major theme of the book uh, gets its, its due, and so I want to turn to punishment. Um, mm -hmm. And so you, you have an interview, uh, uh, your, in your book, a view uh, you call the, the new balance, a new balance for responding to crime. Uh, so tell us what that's about and how it differs from what you call the old balance. Sure. The old balance, the way we usually think about punishment in society is that uh, we employ the metaphor of the scales of justice. They've been tipped. Uh, what caused them to uh, become unbalanced is the harm that's been created or produced by some offender in society. And the way we right the scales, we bring them back into balance, is to send some harm, something unpleasant, the way of the offender, whether it's time in jail, whether uh, in other time periods, it might have been uh, forms of torture or uh, execution and what have you. So uh, that's the traditional model. Uh, connected with the traditional model are such things as uh, we want to punish people who are responsible for what they've done. We don't want to arbitrarily inflict harm on people. We want to give them what's their due, whether it's uh, for the purpose of uh, it's what they deserve or to set an example for other people in society. But in either case, we're doing it. Uh, we're sending harm the way of the offender uh, to rebalance the scales of justice. And with old balance, we're similarly recognizing that the scales have tipped, the offender has caused uh, some harm in the society, but instead of balancing them by sending harm the way of the offender, we either require the offender to do good, and the simple model might be that of community service, or we position the offender in such a way to be a better citizen, to do good in the future by, again, using simple models of uh, responding to offenses that we have available in municipal courts. Uh, giving them a driver safety course, uh, asking them to take an alcohol awareness course, uh, putting them on a deferral period where part of the deferral period requires some community service where they'll have a chance to affiliate with people that might teach them new skills. Uh, so uh, that model, which I'm calling uh, New Balance is the uh, uh, model that I would say we can connect with a people's court insofar as 
this is what you see over and over in people's courts. I don't want to, defendants will say, pay a meaningless crime. I would like to do something that uh, is for the good. And it's an orientation that seems very deeply seated in the minds of citizens. And it seems to accord very closely with how we feel about ourselves if we've uh, wronged someone. We don't say to ourselves, how am I going to punish myself, keep myself from going to the movies for the next month, maybe deprive myself of buying some new clothing, articles of clothing. Rather, we think in terms of what we can do to right the wrong, to do something good to make up for how we've harmed another person. So not only does it seem deeply seated in what we see offenders wanting to do in the municipal court, but it's also very closely rooted in how we, as citizens and people, think about righting our own wrongs. Surely there must be some historical precedent for, these, uh, for this framework. Do either of you want to speak to, to well-known cases or other jurisdictions where, where this has been tried to some extent? One of the negative consequences of not following that kind of new balance, right? I, I think about the war on drugs right? that starts, you know, it's a war on crime that starts in, you know, in the 60s and so forth. So by having that kind of old balance of punishment, right, particularly when it comes to something like drug use, punishing people by removing them from the community, the community suffers, right? It sets up this cycle where you, I mean, initially it was more males taken out of communities for drug use, right? So then we get to this point in our society where we start talking about lack of sufficient role models for young black males, for instance, right? Well, those role models have been taken out of the community and locked up. Right? So if you had a system whereby someone who had, quote, harmed the community by engaging in the drug trade, what do you want to do, right, to serve your community back? Right? That, to me, would have preserved communities. It would have given those young men role models and models of behavior and responsibility to look at, right? I did something that was outside of the law. I should be punished for it, right? Let me make my restitution by restoring the community, by doing something back in the community, right? So we really just depleted resources when we took those people out. So that's, that's one of the things that come to mind. Later then, you know, we started to have uh, people removed from those communities be more female. And there you have, uh, you know, there's another dimension added to it, right? Now there's no... You know, you take a kind of a nurturing function out and young children wind up without mothers and so forth and so on. Uh, if there was something, even Dr. Louise talks about kind of on the outside of that as a kind of a treatment model, right? Which is another kind of institutionalization, but a, a treatment model. I was involved in um, drug courts when I lived in Mobile, Alabama, uh, and with treatment, there was parenting classes and so forth and so on, things that help maintain the community, restore the community, and so forth. So that's that's the thing that comes to my mind when I when you raise that question. And, and I would remark that um, through our session last 
week when we spoke with uh, Dr. Sellers from the Criminal Justice Department. She was really able to relate the damage done to the community by taking mothers away from their families. And so uh, it's really a social responsibility for us to um, not only repair that damage, uh, but to fix why we continue to propagate that. Very good. What, one final question on the theoretical plane before we sort of bring it home a little bit more. What, what do either of you see as the, the chief limitations of people's courts, and in particular limitations that might be surmounted or overcome, or opportunities for improvements maybe in, in further extension of people's courts, um, but, but at the moment, you know, constraints that, that, that face this model of uh, community justice? I might be able to, uh, to speak to uh, uh, a limitation for uh, uh, moving more in the direction uh, of uh, people's courts, especially in the area of uh, responding to offenses. With regard to uh, people's uh, resistance because it seems impractical, it's uh, too far from the norm, visionary, those types of allegations and suggestions. And uh, my response there is that this is a, a model. It's a blueprint for moving forward into the future. Uh, certainly, uh, we're not going to uh, close every prison. There may be a set of dangerous people that need to be separated from society. Uh, so it, it's, not a, it's not a call for uh, uh, a complete conversion, but it's, call, it's a call for uh, embracing uh, an alternative model for mindset for how we re respond to offenses and crime. Uh, and always think in terms of positioning the person uh, to do good for society or doing good. And I know that's um, you know, uh, very uh, very vague, but you know when we look at those examples of awareness courses, community service, we've spent over two thousand years in Western society asking how much pain should we give people for different sorts of offenses, you know, and you know we've probably just spent you know maybe twenty five fifty years on asking uh, what do we do that's the equivalent uh, to a money fine with regard to turning it into community service. And we've only reserved that for very low level offenses. But if we're serious, why shouldn't we be looking at, trying to map what the response would be to someone whom otherwise we would sentence to life in prison? How would you put together a plan for that person's uh, serving society uh, doing good for society, for the community, for a lifetime. It's a hard problem to which very little thought's been given. Uh, so uh, in a way, it's a response to naysayers, uh, people who think it's totally visionary, and it is. It's a, it's a model, it's a vision, but we can commit to it and incrementally move forward in a pragmatic, with a pragmatic spirit and uh, recognize that uh, it might not guide us in all cases, but uh, that's the nature of an ideal or a model.
And so what comes to my mind as a sociologist when I, you know, Dr. Luisi's notion of extending this to citizens, citizens following norms is what the law is, the lived experience that citizens bring to following those norms. To me, it seems to be that you are making an active interpretation of what that law and norm is. So it, it, it's less a shortcoming to me, it's the challenge, right? So in a diverse pluralistic society, when we have a plurality of lived experiences and backgrounds making interpretations of what those norms are, how do we deal with that? I mean, it's a challenge for us. If you come from a certain cultural group, right, that might inform your interpretation Right, that lived experience ex informs your interpretation of what that norm is and how to properly follow it, right? Which may be different from somebody from a different cultural background, a different religious background, right, and so forth. Um, so to me, that is, you know, that's the challenge, right? We really need to, um, you know, kind of work at this. It's it's not easy, right? We really have to. Uh, invest in it and commit to it and find ways to, you know, reconcile these different lived experiences as they come to bear on the interpretation of these norms, which we're going to call the law, right? So, um, so that's just what, what comes to my mind as a sociologist, the different, uh, different interpretations from different groups that are doing that in a pluralistic Very good. society. I'd like to ask all three of you for sure now, uh, what should our listeners know about People's Courts. What, what do Texas State students need to know about People's Courts and what, uh, how could their lives maybe be improved from knowing a little bit more about this? What, what would you like their takeaways to be? Well, if I could just chirp in, and um, this is not my subject, but I did delve into Professor Luisi's book, which I found really illuminating. And um, I came to think about um, believe it or not, Aristotle's chapter in his ethics book on friendship, where mm -hmm. he really puts together an understanding of what it means to be a friend with all the way to government and political situations, but he also, in that chapter, includes his categories of law. So I really um, saw a similarity between uh, what Professor Luisi thinks of and what Professor Anderson has said uh, today about a moral consciousness of our community built on friendship rather than punitive or power dynamics. Reminds me of the adage that a municipal judge might say to a group of uh, grade school children that the municipal court judge is your pal, underlining the pal in municipal. Okay. Uh, I also hear that expression with princi principal. Right? Uh, principal okay, of the elementary yeah. is principal. Right? Yeah. I think what I would want our students to understand is that you know, this is a, an approach that puts agency in the ability to change in their hands. And if they understand that, right, that they have as citizens, right, right to challenge and to change. So this is, takes us a little bit off, but I was thinking of, um, you know, Dr. Harris had given us these questions, and one of them was about Parkland, right? And 
Florida. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, I was thinking about not necessarily the young man who did the shooting, but those students, right? Those students. Those students saw their classmates dead on the floor. They heard that AR-15 going off and going off and going off. That experience became their authority to go out and challenge, right, gun laws, right? And I don't know if anything's going to change. We're still, you know, kind of, we have to be seen. But they certainly have framed the discussion. And they certainly have pushed that discussion longer than the usual discussions around these, you know, Sutherland and, and Las Vegas. You know, they certainly have pushed it. And their authority came from their experience, right? Um, they experienced something that most of us don't experience, and that's their power, right? And they don't care about legal principle. They don't care about that, they don't care about that right? Mm-hmm. My friend was dead on the floor, and I saw them. And that lived experience is my authority to go out and say, we can't allow this to happen anymore, right? So just an understanding that this is, um, you know, there's, this can be empowering, right? This, can, this puts it in your hands, right? So that's what I would want students to understand, right? The kind of agency in the, you know, their experiences matter. And they can be used to uh, shape and change. To take another issue that's sort of timely uh, and that also impacts students, um, we can think about DACA. And I'm wondering here about uh, DREAMers and so forth, if, if this um, illustrates a limitation of, of, of the people's court model. But here what I have in mind is, and, and Professor Uzi, you can, you can speak to this and disabuse me of this if, if I'm mistaken in thinking this, but it has to be tied to sort of community-focused crimes, right? Whereas immigration is sort of a, a national issue by nature. So is, is there a limitation in, in applying the people's court model to issues that are not sort of um, local community centric, right? Uh, so, so on the new balance model, you talk about sort of an offender has damaged the local community and then makes amends by repairing that local community. But if we're talking about the sorts of offenses or crimes that are more national in scope or immigration policy, something that's sort of inherently federal, uh, is is that is that where we run up against the limits of of thinking about uh, people's courts, or in fact, are there insights even there? Well, uh, I'm just thinking about the uh, the different uh, components of the analysis. Uh, uh, certainly, a person in the U.S. who is here under the DACA policy is uh, living has been living a life in accord with how that person understood what the norms were, and we can say that that was law. It was rule-guided conduct, so I don't see any limitation there. Uh, I don't think that when we think about, you know, um, what we want people who are adjudicating, whether someone's going to be deported, whether we want to place on them any less of a call to think critically about who they are as judges and their roles, uh, they still have to take into account how much I'm going to use logic, how much I'm going to think in terms of public policy and juggle factors. And I don't think we think that citizens, our own citizens, have any less of a claim on their activity for how they function. And extending that to punishment, if we do find that uh, there's been an offense committed by someone who's not a citizen, 
uh, and, but we're still uh, bringing them through our judicial process, I'm not sure that there's anything there that speaks for veering from New Balance as the uh, model for responding to the offense. In fact, it, it may seem that thinking about people's courts and the lessons we learn from them show that many things that we might think of as quote-unquote national or federal issues are really better handled as local issues. Thank everybody so much and it's been incredibly informative and enlightening and I really want to thank all of our guests and um, it's been a compelling look into the possible future of justice in the United States. You can find this podcast on ktswblog.net, the Texas State Student Media SoundCloud account, and on the Texas State Philosophy Department's website. Thank you again to our guests, and thank you for listening. This has been Philosophy Mixed. Thank you.